Episode of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice. I'm joined by Chris Williams. We're from Above the Law. So you're reading from the script today. I I always am. I, I just thought you were going to jump in there at any point. Uh, so that's why there was that uh, sort of pause. But uh, yeah, no. So we're here as usual to talk about the top legal stories of the week that was that sort of thing. But first, we have a little small talk. How are you doing? Uh, you know, had you been deposed by one of your friends running a private military army lately or not? I'm not legally allowed to discuss mm-hmm. that information. Okay, that's uh, fair. Outside, outside of that, I'm doing pretty good. Outside of the existential risk of being in the United States, I'm going to go, I'm heading back there soon. <laughs> so for the folks listening, we got a couple more days in Cambodia. By time this is out, I'll probably be headed to, if not in the United States. So Everyone has been waiting to hand me their fan mail, finally have the opportunity because I'll be in the same country. But well, there uh, you go. That's basically my uh, weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. I miss my bed, man. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, man, yeah, I get you, that. Yeah, if you're going to if you're going to invest in something outside of like, you know, stocks you have and try to insider info on, you get a good pair of shoes, you get a good bed. You spend like a third of your life sleeping and you're always walking around. So if you got a good bed and some good shoes, at least for the most of the time in your life, you got some comfort back then. Yeah, I do not particularly enjoy my bed, uh, which is why I, I, I enjoy traveling because normally the ho- <laughs> ho- hotel beds are better. But the thing is, I used to. I used to have this fantastic bed when I was an attorney, a practicing attorney. And, you know, it just doesn't quite work for me right now. It's more of a guest bed these days. But, oh, that it, I spent way too much I felt on it at the time but I mean I was a I was a lawyer making big law money so I was like oh well the same thing you said like third of my life sleeping I should invest in this and I did and I felt guilty instantly after doing it and then I have not felt guilty since for years and years that was the single most comfortable part of my life so I will echo that you should buy the only thing I'm saying here, Joe, is maybe you should be a little bit more religious because if you do it the right way, the the guilt is actually part of the fun. Fair, uh, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I will echo this advice though for anybody out there who is about to get their, you know, their nice lawyer check. Splurging when it comes to a mattress is not a bad idea, and I know that there's all of these perfectly wonderful mattress companies that are advertising everywhere that they can send it to you in a box and it'll be fine. And those are fine. But the people who really build real mattresses with springs and everything, uh, those are still more comfortable. So anyway, we've talked about mattresses. That was not something I had on my on my notes for today. I'm I'm impressed. I didn't have well, I'm, I'm obviously not on my notes because I don't do we don't practice small talk, but it wasn't on my bingo card for the day, I guess I should say. Well, you know me, I always start with what? Mattresses. Hmm. Well, I'm trying to think. Speaking of being <laughs> taken to the mattresses, no, I don't really have anything <laughs> for the transition. Why don't you sleep on it? Oh, why don't I sleep on it? That's a good one. Yeah. No, uh, you know, speaking of traveling and sleeping in luxury hotels, I guess let's, that's the obvious transition to the 
news about Sam Alito that has come out since the last time we recorded. There's a lot to untangle with this story. So ProPublica, uh, the folks who have who've been in the news a lot with Clarence Thomas revelations, had some Sam Alito ones of their own. Alito has received stuff from rich people, uh, including this Paul Singer individual who was on a trip with him, a resort trip to a remote area of Alaska where they went fishing and were apparently cornered by bears. And they hung out with Leonard Leo. And, you know, so it was just like a nice little love-in for a bunch of right-wing ideologues to have a Supreme Court justice with them while they went on vacation. Turns out Scalia went on this same trip in his day. And Sam Alito took a trip there on a private jet, which he failed to disclose and then never recused himself in cases that involved this guy. So totally that, normal, totally normal. Yeah. Stuff. So that's a thing. This this could have been like the Clarence Thomas revelations, a really, you know, another black eye for the court and its ethics and another opportunity for the court to pretend that it doesn't have an ethics problem when it clearly does. But then it got weirder, didn't it? Always does. So it got weirder in that we actually didn't hear this story from ProPublica at first. The story was originally brought to light by Sam Alito publishing an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal complaining, pre-rebutting, basically, the ProPublica article that was going to happen. ProPublica had asked him for comment on their story. Rather than respond to that comment or just ignore it, he intentionally published a response to it ahead of the date, the, the deadline that ProPublica had given him. He was trying to scoop their own story with his narrative. What do we have was, to say about this? Well, my thing is, I there's a, there's, a, there's a dumb story from when I was in high school. So I had a bunch of friends and I was like sitting in a window, as one does, and they threatened to push me out of it. So I was like, at least, were the you, least I no, wait, do. were you actually friends with Vladimir Putin back in the day? I'm not legally allowed to discuss <laughs> this. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm on the window and I'm going to get pushed out of the window. So I'm like, hmm, I could just leave the window myself. So I get out the window. I'm, I'm start meditating on the roof because I'm like, if this is going to hit the fan, at least I'm the one that's like starting it. So I can have some sort of taking control of my narrative. So I'm generally a big fan of when people are like, I'm about to get exposed. Let me say what's happening first is damage control. But mm -hmm. the thing with that is you usually don't want to make the way that you're trying to take control of the narrative worse off for you. Well, that is that is an excellent point. And that is certainly what Alito managed to do here. Uh, putting aside that he, well, let, actually, we won't put this aside. We'll start here. So it's fair to say that the ProPublica report was out there and being written, and Sam Alito leaked it, uh, which might be a trend for this guy. So he goes to the Wall Street Journal and writes this. Uh, let's start with the leaking issue. One of the, you know, there's a lot wrong with his response, but one aspect of it that folks have zeroed in on is did he just kind of admit that he's the one who leaked the Dobbs decision, which is, of course, what he's, he and Ginny Thomas are like the most likely people to have done it. So this has been kind of assumed. But the decision to go to the Wall Street Journal this way and leak it beforehand in an effort to get control of it certainly shows that he has kind of a 
modus operandi here, but he also chose to go to the Wall Street Journal, which eagle-eyed observers pointed out immediately after this came out. The Wall Street Journal, even though Politico is the one who ultimately would publish the leaked opinion first, the Wall Street Journal had been making some comments about what was going on with the Dobbs deliberations in the weeks before the leak came out that were weirdly prescient of the, about what was going on. They were saying stuff like, we believe there's a majority for overturning Roe, but a couple of the justices are being wooed to another side. We don't know what's going to happen. We're worried that they might do that. All of these statements fit the narrative that if Alito leaked that opinion in order to lock in justices and prevent them from looking like hypocrites and pulling back on it, which is the most likely interpretation of what happened, the fact that he goes to the Wall Street Journal with this more or less and knows that they're the people he can call on a moment's notice to get something published suggests that he has a pre-existing relationship with those folks to publish his thoughts internally. It makes you rethink all of the Wall Street Journal editorial board's coverage of the court and whether or not they've been basically a pipeline for his opinions all along. This is why you diversify your portfolio, people. Yeah, nice. I did the classic reference. Two points. So that said, uh, so th there's that. There's also the making it worse part bizarrely, rather than deny that he went on this trip or anything, which not that he really could, he admits to doing it and admits to taking the private jet travel and not disclosing it. Uh, his response to that is to put a bunch of de definitions from Webster's and Black's Law Dictionary, you know, two sources that literally no lawyer would ever actually look at, puts them in this Wall Street Journal thing to say, look, Technically, I wasn't required to disclose private air travel because it's a facility. And planes are like facilities based on these definitions. These definitions, of course, are not the definitions in the statute itself or the regulations surrounding it, which means, well, I mean, it, it just kind of underscores the level of bad statutory analysis that this guy does. So he doesn't disclose. He then claims that it's all okay because otherwise this plane would have had an empty seat. That's not really how bribery works. Like that's like saying that, you know, I, I had to take the briefcase. Otherwise the briefcase full of money would have just sat there. So that, that's not really a defense. It, it's weird. Uh, it also set up well, this is the other thing. Uh, let's talk about getting ahead of the narrative because I think you're right that that's generally a good idea. But in this instance, in the thing that I wrote, I, this, this story was brutal for me just as, as a personal level because I, you know, story broke in the evening. I worked on it, got a, a draft finished right around midnight. Uh, and that's when ProPublica, because they had been scooped on this, they accelerated the release of their report and they put it out. So I then ended up working till about 2 or 2.30 in the morning to get the article adjusted to include their stuff. It was brutal for me too. I just want to say, because if Alito was right and the only thing that made him have to take the flight was that there was an empty seat, I was just as qualified. So when yeah. I'm finding out that I'm missing out on free six figure travel, I, it hurt, you know, <laughs> I would say I lost sleep, but I had a great mattress. So. Oh, see, he is always coming back. So the problem with, and I put this in my original draft before ProPublica, followed up. 
was that I, I at the time said, you know, I worry that this is not a particularly smart strategy to try and pre-rebut ProPublica because ProPublica throughout the Clarence Thomas thing has looked like they understand how to deliver the pain, sandbag to deliver the pain. Remember, they first put out some allegations about Clarence Thomas getting some stuff from Harlan Crow. Clarence Thomas's defense of himself was, oh, that's all covered by the personal hospitality exception, and that's why I didn't have to disclose it. And that's when they dropped the, oh, except your mom gets free housing and your nephew gets free tuition, which can't be personal, now can it, Clarence? So they understand how to hold back stuff to drop the hammer after somebody makes the, the expected response. So all Sam Alito did was basically lay out his strategy and allow ProPublica to hit immediately, uh, which ended up happening because his defense was he barely knows who Paul Singer is other than going on this trip, which, well, turned out not to be true. And ProPublica was able to bring a bunch of receipts of the many contacts between him and Paul Singer, including a contemporaneous above the law article from 2009, which was kind of fun to dig up. I mean, I didn't work at above law back then, but yeah, it, it popped up in the ProPublica report and I read it. And in 2009, David Latt attended the a conference, I believe it was a FedSoc conference, where the two were joking around about their buddy-buddy trips. So hearing this, I got to say, and this is pushed back against you. I think that Alito is the one been feeding information to Wall Street Journal, while likely yeah. true is the wrong angle. The right Ooh. angle is who the fuck is feeding ProPublica info? Because <laughs> <laughs> they, they got this shit going back two decades. And it's like, well, they, one, what has legal journalism been doing for the last 20 years to not be well, tabs on some of the like, most, most like out there jurists? And two, mm -hmm. like, how do they keep getting this information on these people? Like, I mean, they're good if, reporters. If, if, if it's Sotomayor, like... Shouts out. They, they're good reporters, I think, is a big part of this. Uh, you know, they have a article up explaining kind of like the oral history of how this report came together. And they mm -hmm. talked to, like, the private plane pilots from that trip and everything. All, like, they, they really went in depth to get all of this together. Yeah, no, they um, – but you raise an excellent point. Uh, there, I did see some social media traffic that, you know – isn't wrong that was like this must be a really embarrassing moment for not to call out a specific person but people like nina totenberg who have kind of crowned themselves the go-to sources on everything's insider supreme court and they were always about like we know exactly what's going on and you gotta wonder well this has been going on for 20 30 years we never we had to wait to hear about it from propublica what in the world were you doing that whole time you know, it and it is and a it's, bad time. It's for legal weird. Journalism. It's weird in um, it's weird in real time to have the suspicions that you've taken a propaganda branch as real reporting. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, and there and there are points where like the the role the role of propaganda isn't always just like straight up lie because then people will be like, oh well, this is we're always lying. But you occasionally sprinkle some truth, you know. So I mm -hmm. do think that it is interesting to see like the the angle of why one yes this is a controversy, but it's a controversy because all this has been happening 
for 20 years, people have been sitting on these cases for decades that they've clearly been implicated in and yeah. have during this time have been able to make these claims about how like they're like not partisan hacks, what have you, with little pushback. Yeah, like we didn't necessarily know that he had been flown there on this mm-hmm. plane until the ProPublica report. But what the 2009 Above the Law report shows, even though it was not written as a expose, it was more just covering the event. But if you read between the lines of it, you knew that he had gone to Alaska with this guy on a trip. At that point, you can look at the financial disclosures and see that that hadn't been disclosed anywhere. So that should have raised a red flag. You should be, you know, he ends up being involved. Well, maybe there was a a presumption that he paid for his own ticket. Do you need to do you need to disclose if you pay for your own shit? Well, that right. Yes, you would. You would need to. You do not need to do that. So there can be that presumption, but I think you at least have to raise the question when you're talking about expensive vacations with billionaires whether or not you know they shouldn't really be in the same tax bracket, right? Uh, True. So you, you know, they, he should be staying at a different hotel. I think. I think in, in like in defense of people from you know two twenty nine two thousand and nine, and this is kind of to your point. I think the assumption is that, of course, a judge isn't being a Supreme Court justice isn't being isn't taking gifts from multimillionaires or billionaires. So maybe there's just an, a, a baked in good faith assumption that they're paying for their own trip. Yeah. Although, I mean, well, qu- query whether it's OK, even if they are paying for their own trip. Fair. It seems like. A, yeah, right. But but it's at least something somebody could have questioned. And then you add mm. on to this trip having happened and that, you know, contemporaneously that it happens. You have the uh, you have the cases involved that are run by this guy, where he has business before the court that Alito is is adjudicating, and now Alito's defense of that in his op ed is his name isn't on it. It's just like NGL. I can't remember. I think it's that NGL Capital Market Capital Securities LLC. How would I have known that that was him? Putting aside that, that's how corporations work. Uh, And so if his argument is, unless I see a person's actual name on something, I don't consider it a conflict, that is a scathing (laughs) admission as to whether or not the Supreme Court has any ethical rules of value at all. But also, because he locked into that answer, ProPublica was able to bring receipts into their initial report, pointing out that you had to live under a rock not to know that that's what this guy that was the company this guy ran. He was actually writing his own editorials in major newspapers talking about how he was the person behind this case. So there was no way to really not know that uh, without raising even worse questions about whether or not Sam Alito is smart enough to be on the court. So you've got, that's something you knew at the time. You knew at the time he was making a he was participating in a case that was this guy's personal hobby horse case and that you knew that he had gone on vacation with him. You may not have known that he'd been flown there. You may not have known that he hadn't paid for anything. But you knew that his buddy's case that he went vacationing with was being determined by the court and he was not recusing himself. Fair game. Like, yeah, it's hard to and, not and, see that. And, yeah, and that's something that Supreme Court reporters could have pieced together at the time if they were focused on it. And like above the law, like we dabble in Supreme Court stuff. We obviously do analysis of decision stuff, but we're not 
you know, we don't hang out at one first street like some folks are able to do. We're also out covering other things. So, you know, it's not like I, you know, I, I don't blame Lat for not digging through a bunch of financial forms back in the day. But there are people who really, really should have been on this. Anyway. Generate quality briefs, memos, and redlines in minutes with Calidus AI. You enter the case's facts, then Calidus suggests bodies of law, statutes, and precedents. You tell it if those are relevant, and Calidus generates a well-cited, well-formatted document. You can trust what went into it because you put it there. Be exceptionally productive with better outcomes using Legal's most advanced AI platform. Just three minutes from registration to results. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code JOE at calidusai.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I dot com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right, we're back. Let's talk about weed. I guess, right? <laughs> and and more about judges and ethics and weed and so on. Go. Oh, I thought this was an extension of small talk. I was going to ask what your favorite, if you had a favorite strain. <laughs> yeah, there was a, this was an interesting case coming out of D.C. Two parties, as it usually is, some guy and some person he lived near. And she was complaining that the weed he was smoking was giving her all sorts of health problems. And she sued the guy in court and wanted $500,000 in damages. Um, none of that happened. And by that, I mean she wasn't able to prove that she had actual health problems and she didn't get money for it. But the judge decided that he could no longer smoke in his own home because, that, because him smoking interfered with her right to enjoy her property. And that he had to go, like, say, 20, 25 feet away from his own house to smoke which he did because he had a medical license. So he was at least presumably able to prove that his use of marijuana was for some medical reason. Yeah. Well, so now this this is interesting. So now my take on this case was it is, you know, it is problematic that people can't do anything inside their own home. That said, it really speaks to a weird situation that we're in where Marijuana. This happened for marijuana. I don't know as though this would have ever happened for tobacco, right? Which you would think, which actually we have documented ways in which that can cause health problems for secondhand mm-hmm. consumers. And there are instances where there have been like public housing and there's been restrictions on being able to smoke cigarettes in public housing. This was a private affair. This, these, yeah. are, these are private homeowners. And I really don't get what I'm the 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 way I'm assuming this makes sense is if there is some prejudice against marijuana use specifically, because if it's just an yeah. issue of like battling property rights, I mean he has the right to enjoy. I mean how do you how do you really balance his right to enjoy his property against hers if there isn't some sort of skew against uh, the object, right? Because I'm like right. 
when it's cold out in this winter and he's like, I don't know, let's presume he has joint pain. Not only does he have joint pain, he has to then go outside to smoke. And of course, he can have edibles or have some tincture or some other thing. But that's beside the point. The issue is why were his neighbor's property rights, the right to enjoin, prioritized over his when his neighbor had no clear showing of a health issue, but he had a clear showing of a health issue? I, I, I didn't get it. I, it didn't make sense to me. Yeah, like, I, and... And, you know, yeah, I think there's definitely this is definitely something that wouldn't happen if it wasn't marijuana. Right. Like we don't think it would necessarily have happened with tobacco, even though it can, as you point out. And there also could have been less intrusive ways like the I think judges have some some creativity here. They could have mandated that a filtering system be put in or they could have, you know, done something to be to better balance the interests of the of both parties rather than just deciding to side with one. Yeah. I also feel like this this crosses into, and I, I hate to sound like I'm like I'm a fed sock person here, but <laughs> it, this this seems like it crosses into using courts to do what should be handled by political branches, right? Like if if marijuana or tobacco or whatever it is, if it is legal, it can be consumed in your home, and if it causes impacts for somebody in a different home, then that's up to Congress to make it illegal to consume in your home. Like, that's not a place where the courts can go, should be going and saying, well, we've decided you can't use tobacco in your house, even though everybody's allowed it to be legal. We've decided no. Like, that feels like it's going a bridge too far toward a regulation that should be handled by somebody who is actually qualified to do regulations. I don't know. I mean, even if, even if I'm sympathetic to the idea, like, if, if you're in an apartment where things leak over, if it's tobacco, I wouldn't necessarily worry. Like I have nothing about whether it's marijuana or tobacco. If that's going on, like that seems like there should be some sort of redress to it. But like you said, filtration systems or something seem like a much more appropriate answer. Or if it was like rental, then it, the landlords could get involved or something. But like, yeah, it's All right. I agree. We have we have yeah. a system for a reason. You need to do the legwork of befriending billionaires who have bought the Congress people that make the laws yeah. to do things in your favor. You know, yeah, you, like, can't, yeah. you can't circumvent yeah. it and then go to the judges who are bought by the millionaires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to. I mean, just because it's cheaper to buy one of nine than it is one of 538. Like, come on. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there. All right. Well, so the long-awaited above-the-law law school rankings are out. That was the big news from last week. We do our you own you got to have a drum sound roll for that. A drum oh, roll yeah, sound. yeah, 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 yeah. Above-the-law's law school rankings are out. There you go. So yeah, we uh, we do our own law school rankings. Obviously, the U.S. news rankings have been beset by controversy this year with bunches of people boycotting and causing all sorts of nonsensical results and delays and whatever. Ours are out. 
and people should check them out. Uh, as usual, for those who aren't familiar with how our rankings work, we began as a response to U.S. News, and U.S. News has engaged in some reform of their methodology in response to this over the years, but when we started it, it was because U.S. News was fixated on school inputs. Large portion of the rankings were who has students with the best GPAs and undergrad GPAs and the best LSAT scores, and we thought that the appropriate metric of judging a law school should be on the back end, how many of these people are getting real jobs? How many of these people are getting high-paying jobs? Because, you know, it's it's one thing to be able to say, I got a job, but if that job isn't covering your student loans, then that's not really a good outcome. Uh, I got to say, I do think that yeah. that is a very interesting non-lawyery take on mm-hmm. law school rankings. Because there is, I think, baked, baked into the traditions of the traditions of the vocation. There's Mm. a strange fetishization of prestige Mm -hmm. and the decision to focus on outcome rather than incomes, I think, reflects a more prioritization of use of these schools rather than the, you know, special aura associated with them, you know. Yeah. And well, and one thing that was surprising about it when we find when we did create these rankings is we assumed in some ways that it would still reflect prestige, right? Because theoretically, prestige is being built by the outcomes. It's being built by, you know, prestige isn't coming from somebody had a good GPA coming in. It's built by, oh, yeah, I worked with somebody who graduated from there for 20 years and they're super smart. My thing is, I, I'm, yeah. I still assume that a lot of the prestige still comes from whatever schools had the best sports teams in 1800. Yeah, well, and fair. Because a lot of the um, Ivies had like, were, were college, were college like sports. Like Yale, Harvard. And, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So is it, but it, but it turned out that when we started focusing more on outcomes, uh, obviously the schools at the top are still elite schools, but it is not exactly the elite schools that you would think based on the U.S. news rankings. Like Duke basically dominates our rankings. So they've been first or second over the last four or five years. They repeated as number one again. Uh, that is very much an elite private school. But it is not, in law school terms, Yale or Harvard. And yet, because our system takes into account those outcomes, the quality of those outcomes, and puts a lot of weight on how much the tuition and debt is uh, that you come out with, Duke comes out better. Uh, and that's, look, don't take all, any ranking as, you know, perfectly gospel and just like choose Duke over somebody who's number two or three because, well, they're one and not three. Like, use use them for a lot of different reasons. Uh, Dig into the numbers. Think about it. uh, Take all the information into account. But it is interesting that when you strip away the reliance on how smart the kids are coming in, and by smart, obviously, in heavy quotation marks, how accomplished they were as undergrads coming in, you get a different picture, and it's very interesting to see how that plays out year over year. Besides Duke, were there any interesting schools on this list this year, or at least Not, the placements? No, I mean, look, Yale continues to drop uh, in our first I think articulation. It was this year, yeah, Yale wasn't yeah. in the top fourteen, which is yeah. And again, fourteen is a weird number. Again, like lawyers, it's for completely some, arbitrary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was cool to see. Oh, like, yeah, look at that. Look at that lower half of top twenty. Take that. Yeah. 
you know, we've gotten flack in the past for the idea that we privilege the high paying jobs. Um, and this is part of actually the Yale complaint against U.S. News was U.S. News was going to like they were complaining about it from the perspective of U.S. News starting to consider debt loads. They were saying, oh, well, that's going to privilege people who are rich going into rich jobs, whatever. Uh, it was all dumb. You can read all about how stupid it was in, in our coverage. However, we have gotten flack for hyper-privileging big law jobs and big law salaries because, hey, that downplays public interest work, which is unfortunate. and We don't necessarily want to you know, suggest a law school isn't as good if everybody's going into public interest work at a high level, too. That said... Our logic is there's not a particular, uh, to defend the methodology, our logic has always been there's not a really good way of saying this is a quality job and this isn't vis-a-vis all the jobs that everybody gets out of law school and keeping track of everyone or whatever. But we can say that if the law school is producing a lot of people who are going to big law firms that are paying the top salary that tends to suggest that the student body graduating is in high regard in the industry. And even if folks who are coming out of that law school are choosing to go into public interest work, they're probably going into the higher level public interest work too. We think of it more as a proxy uh, than we just think that it's important to go to big law. So like we're saying that that's the, the end all of corporate of the industry work. But We'd think it's a proxy. We wish we could come up with a easier way to be able to say that this public sector job is better than this public sector job, but that's fraught with a lot of issues. So the salary is easier. It's a lot easier to say this school is employing students that go to a firm that pays them 180 to start, and this one is employing students that go to a firm that starts at 210, than to say, well, this school is employing employing students that have a public interest job where they're saving the polar bears and over here they're doing public interest where they're you know fighting the you know fighting the prison industrial complex like it's a lot harder to weigh it's a lot harder to weigh that qualitatively yeah and 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 like look not for nothing there there's public sector people doing what i would consider bad public sector work you know there are people who are taking jobs you know working for nonprofits to make sure that gay people don't have rights and that is awful, but nonetheless, a public, public-y job uh, to the extent they're going to work for some nonprofit. And, you know, how do you deal with that? They're probably, you know, what, what does that say about the law school's ability to get to place the student in a job that they want? You know, if that's what we're doing, that still needs to matter too. And so like, you, looking at how the schools place, how the schools position their graduates to get the best is what we want. And a good proxy for that is how many, because most people aren't going to go into public sector work, how many of them are going to higher paying jobs than lower paying jobs is that proxy, whatever. Yeah. Anyway, defending our methodology a little bit, uh, because that is definitely the criticism we get the most for it. That's why. All right. Well, we've gone on for a while. We should wrap up. Thanks, everybody, for listening. You should be subscribed to the show. That way you get all the new episodes as soon as they come out. You should give us reviews. I know it's annoying to do the review thing. Most people just listen to podcasts and never get around to doing the reviews. It takes a few seconds. Just give the stars and move on. Or better, 
give the stars and write a couple of sentences, just like love the show. It's great. You know, they're fun, yada, yada. That helps. Uh, the algorithms view that as engagement and then they recommend the show to more people and then more people can join our fun little crew here. You can even spite Joe and literally write yada, yada. We just want the engagement. Well, I don't know about yada yada, but you can definitely <laughs> you can definitely spite me by saying that you like everybody else better. Who knows? I, whatever. Anyway, you should be doing all that. You should be checking out Above the Law so you could read these and more stories as the, we write about them every week. You should be following us on social media. The blog is at ATL blog. We're I'm at Joseph Patrice. I'm at Joe Patrice on Blue Sky. I need to be doing a better job about that. Uh, Chris is at Writes for Rent, uh, as in he's writing, because he's a writer, Writes for Rent. And you should be listening to the other, you should be listening to Jabot, which uh, not here this week, but Catherine Rubino, our usual other host, uh, she that's her show. I'm a guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. For those of you into legal tech, you should be checked out checking out the other shows on the Legal Talk Network. And I think that brings us full circle and we can be uh, done. Oh, no, more important announcement. We are not going to be here next week for anybody who was hoping to uh, hear a 4th of July episode. But we, we, it's, it's 4th of July, and so we're not going to be here. But we'll be back the week after. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.